0: Welcome to another exciting message from Journey Church, meaning weekly in Northwest Calgary. At Journey Church, we're encountering God and embracing people. 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact he was not Jesus who, who was, Jesus was baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Joseph well was there. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it for himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father and the Spirit in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Yes. So last night, I, d- I didn't have a reader yet, and I was just kind of just began to pray, and it's like, Wait, wait, wait. Wait, 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 Julian. And, and, the, and immediately the Lord put Julian on my heart. And I told him this privately this morning. And then I felt like the Lord say, say it in front of everybody. That God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. Okay, you can go now. So... Um, there's a place in the Bible that we, we hear about and we read about a lot, but truthfully, many of us don't know too much about this place, uh, and that place is Samaria. So, for example, we read about the parable of the Good Samaritan, from which we get things like Samaritan's Purse and different hospitals with the name of Samaria in it. And normally when we read stories like that, what we do is uh, we go through and we look at the the characters and the character development within these stories. Uh, But important to reading the Bible well is also actually to notice place. And Samaria is, is one of those places. And in our text today, it actually says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And we're not sure why Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's, it's possible just that he felt that the Spirit led him to go through Samaria, and therefore he had to go. We're not quite certain what the reason was that he had to go through Samaria. What we do know is that in this time period, uh, the Jews of Jesus' day would avoid going through Samaria. Why? Well, this is a bit of a, a complex and a, and a sad history So we're told in 1 Kings that when the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, uh, that Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And eventually what happened was that uh, the whole area actually ended up being called Samaria. Well, in 721 B.C., the Assyrians came in and they invaded Samaria And what they did is they came in, they didn't come in and and destroy everybody. Instead, they came in and and they deported most of the people, but not all of the people. Uh, What we're told, actually, is that they deported the ruling class. So what that meant is that they went in and they took all, like, the wealthiest people and the people of influence and the people of skill, and they deported them and brought them to Assyria. Now, at the same time that they did that, They took other people who were foreigners, and a a few Assyrians as well, and probably the foreigners were people that they deported from other areas, and they took them to Samaria, and then they put them inside of Samaria. And so now you had this kind of mixed group of people. Well, what happened? So naturally, um, you had these people who began to fall in love and get married and have children. And this was all fine and good until the exile ended and the people who left Judea, these Jews ended up coming back and they began to despise the people in Samaria uh, because they had intermarried. Now, I we would like to pretend that that kind of attitude and that kind of thinking is very far removed from us as Canadians. And in one way it is, in another way it isn't. Uh, I was born in 78. In the 70s, just over, uh, a little over 40% of Canadians disagreed with with this kind of interracial marriage. Thankfully today, we've moved beyond that, and there's almost unanimous uh, approval by millennials. And yet within uh, the millennials, actually, it still makes it uh, into your literature. So, for those millennials who, like, you're like, what is this thing he's talking about? It is like when Draco Malfoy called Hermione a mudblood in, in, uh, in Harry Potter. Somebody's like, Phil is from the occult. He quoted Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, but the, re- the reaction actually is, is, in this fictional story, is actually quite strong. And um, they had a friend named Ron Weasley, and it said this uh, when they're beginning to explain what uh, she had been called. And he said, It's a disgusting thing to call someone, said Ron, wiping his sweaty brow with a shaking hand. Dirty blood, see, common blood, it's mad. And it is mad, it's madness. And this is exactly where the trouble began uh, for the Samaritans in terms of the of the tensions. But the division wasn't merely racial and racist. Uh, the division was religious as well. And so part of what happened when these various cultures began to come together is that... Some of their beliefs ended up uh, changing as well. And and it wasn't the fact that they all of a sudden decided to trade their religion for another religion. It was like these different religious views kind of began to morph together. Um, It was very similar to Judaism, Samaritanism, and yet, while it was very similar, and we'll talk just a little bit about that in a second. It was also significantly different. So there's a scholar by the name of John Bowman, and and he talks about, he does all these studies on Samaritan religion. And one of the things that he says, he said it was like a mix of Yahwehism, so like what the Jews believe, but also their former um, idolatries that they would get into. He said it was like kind of this religious mix that ended up happening. Uh, Interestingly, the Samaritans ended up putting an immense value on the Torah or the Pentateuch or the books of Moses, which are the first five books of the Bible. But then they didn't have any regard for the other books of the Bible. So they focused only on these first five books, which, considering that they're called the books of Moses, it's not surprising that their main religious figure uh, was Moses. And in fact, they were awaiting a redeemer, a person they called the Teheb. Who is going to come and to redeem them? And they view this person as someone like Moses, or maybe even Moses, who would be resurrected from the dead and who would come to their place of worship and would inevitably redeem them. So, what's fascinating actually is you go back, you can read that they had an established religion and established belief. And it sounded similar to Judaism, but it was different than Judaism. So here, here's a, an interesting example of some Samaritan theology for you. Um, it says, let there be light. We've heard these words before, yes? Let there be light, and the light from which was the Holy Spirit, which he caused to rest in the loins of the prophets, in which he manifested in the image of our Lord Moses in the unseen world uh, and the scene. Okay, so what's fascinating here is the light that they're talking about, um, which was from the Holy Spirit, was regarded as the pre-existent Moses. And this is, this is quite fascinating. So the more that I studied some time ago on the religious beliefs of the Samaritans, and the more that I saw that they had both this kind of like familiar thing with Judaism and yet this really unfamiliar thing with Judaism, the more I thought of, the, of many of the conversations that I've had, uh, with some of my Muslim friends. Uh, there is a level of familiarity that we have with Muslims. So, for example, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all claim and are children of Abraham, right? Um, it's interesting, even Allah, sometimes I hear uh, Christians say, well, we don't believe in Allah. Well, actually, Allah, many Christians in other parts, it's, it's just a different language for, for the word God. Um there's other, you have similarities even when it comes to Jesus. Um, I've talked about this during Advent, of the virgin birth, um, of the second coming, uh, all these different types of things, of, of Messiah, and yet meaning something really different from that. And what's fascinating, too, is when you begin to talk to Muslims and say, hey, well, you could both be talking about the same thing. Let's say Adam and Eve, for example. And I was doing this and having this dialogue back and forth, and then I realized, wait, 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 wait. We have all the same characters, but your story of Adam Eve, and Eve is different than our story of Adam and Eve. And so you have this level of similarity and yet this level of significant difference, right? Where there, we, there's no way we would say that they are uh, one and the same thing. And what can happen in situations like this is because, precisely because we are s- close enough, you can have almost sibling rivalry that happens where you say, well, I'm a child of Abraham. I mean, you claim to be a child of Abraham, but I am not you, and you are not me. Right? And what can happen from this then is what this guy named Rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he calls altruistic evil. And he defines it like this. It's evil committed in a sacred cause in the name of high ideals. Where suddenly people say, well, we have, and it's not always religious, by the way, uh, in religion that this happens. It happens in other ways, too. But in the name of religion, we can begin to be angry, and we can begin to do things against other people. Um, and this is interesting, then. So then when you begin to see that a lot of her language is very loaded with what she's saying. Because there's this racial tension, and then there's this religious tension of like, well, it's similar, but we are not the same. And so, in verse 20, she says this, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, what's interesting is that even today, this mountain that she's talking about is a place called Mount Gerizim. And even today, believe it or not, there are still a few hundred, like a remnant of a few hundred people, Samaritans, that will go and worship on Mount Gerizim and are anticipating the Tehab to come back. Um, But this is particularly loaded and particularly interesting because we're talking here in the time of Jesus and in 128 B.C., uh, a group of Jews had gone and they went to Shechem and they attacked Shechem and they went to Mount Gerizim and they went to their temple and they burned it to the ground. So you can imagine today in some of the holy sites throughout the world, if somebody of an opposing religion went and burned that place to the ground, the type of animosity that would begin to exist between these two groups, right? And this is what's happening here, and in fact, there's escalating animosity. So she's asking this, and it is just, it's an absolutely loaded question. She's saying, like, who are you? What is your intention, and why are you asking these things of me? Now, We have racial division and racist division. We have religious division, but there's something else at play here, too. Notice what the woman says to Jesus. She says, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? And in this one sentence she talks about a double boundary that Jesus is, 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 has just crossed. He's crossed this religious-slash-cultural boundary uh, of Samaritanism, but he's also crossed a, a gender boundary with her. And, and we see this. There's a guy named Bob Ackblad. He says, that as a Jewish man, Jesus is prohibited by religious norms from having any public contact with a woman or any contact with a samaritan. So you know that you know that yellow tape that says do not cross. That tape though not visible is all over the place in this story. It, there's like the gender tape, there's the cultural tape, there's the religious and so it is all over the place and Jesus is respectfully breaking through each part of it. Now the story actually gets more interesting this is John 4. It gets more interesting when you place it next to John 3, like a lot of scholars do. In John 3, we read about a man named Nicodemus. Uh, you might recall Nicodemus is the guy that Jesus went to him and, and, and he said, You must be born again. And Nicodemus, like, like, what am I gonna enter back into my mother's womb again? I don't even is that even surgically possible? Like, I don't I don't know what you're talking about, right? And so Jesus has this conversation with him. And, and one of the things, right in the very first verse about Nicodemus, it tells us that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council. In other words, Nicodemus was a religious bigwig. He had the credentials, and, and he, was, he was an insider. But we're told an interesting thing. We're told that he came to Jesus at night. This is like cloak and veil kind of stuff. He doesn't want people to know that he's coming to Jesus. He doesn't want his religious buddies to see that he's coming to Jesus. So he comes at night, kind of cloak and veil, and comes to see Jesus. Now, when you put that next to the story of this woman, none of this is happening at night. It says it happens at noon. So right in the middle of the day, Jesus is having this meeting uh, with, this, with this woman. And what's really fascinating is if you compare... The conversation from chapter three that Jesus has with the religious leader, with the conversation he has in chapter four with this lady who is culturally, gender wise, and and socially on the outside. When Jesus talks with the religious leader, Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus almost immediately fades into the background and the dialogue turns into a Jesus monologue, which actually, if you read many of Jesus' stories, most of it is monologue. Jesus is talking. Except when you get to this Samaritan woman outsider, you actually have the longest recorded conversation in the Bible that Jesus has with anybody. And some people tell you, and it's not just like a monologue. There's like this lively give and take happening back and forth between Jesus and this woman. And it just gets interesting because she, I like this lady. Like she's a little bit snarky, and, and I'm like, man, I, I liked it, and I think Jesus likes it too. Now, one of the things that John does in his book is he uses metaphor a lot. And if you're reading through the book of John, you have to keep your eyes open for metaphor. One of the metaphors that John uses over and over and over again, but in different ways, is the metaphor of water. So, John uses um, water for physical thirst as a metaphor. He uses water for cleansing the body as a metaphor, and uh, water as childbirth as a metaphor. Now, think about this. Last week... We were in John chapter two, and we talked about water as cleansing for a metaphor, didn't we? Remember, uh, Jesus asked them to bring the cleansing water, whereby they could cleanse himself, and he would turn that into wine. So we see that. Then we see with Nicodemus that Jesus is using water and childbirth as a metaphor, and then we get here, and Jesus is using water as physical thirst for a metaphor. So here's the question. When Jesus goes to the religious leader and he begins to use the metaphor, does the religious leader get it? No. He doesn't pick up on what Jesus is saying at all. What about the woman here, though? Does she get it? Well, not at first. But by the end of it, she gets it. In fact, she leaves her water bucket behind. She she gets it. So you have the religious insider who misses it completely, but you have this religious outsider where she goes, oh, I know what you're saying. Something, something begins to click. Part of what I want to do this morning is to ask, we're talking about these encounters with Jesus, right? What does Jesus' encounter with this woman teach us about our encounter with the other And we could talk about the religious other or the social other or any type of other that we seem to like to create, right? And the first thing that I think we can notice as Jesus is meeting this lady who's like this outsider in all these regards, the first thing that we can say is that he goes to her. Jesus goes to her, and it's not just that he goes to her, he goes out of his way to go to her. You know, like I said, most Jews during this time would not travel through Samaria. In fact, Samaria uh, was noted as being a a dangerous place to travel through, and it was to be avoided. Uh, But there are a lot of ways in which we avoid people and places, aren't there? Have you ever been avoided before? Have you ever walked down a hallway, and you saw somebody who recognized you, and the second they did, they, like, turned and walked down a different corridor? No, it's just me. Okay. Well, <laughs> what does this say? Uh, so we, you know, you have, you see this sometimes, and it's painful uh, when people avoid you. But we do this not only with individuals, do we? We do this with actual whole people groups and, and regions, and we do it not only I- in in walking, but even in our cars. Um, I've been in you know different cities in the U.S., and people will tell you, oh, don't go, d- don't drive through that part of city. Don't drive through that part of the city, right? Why? Oh, it's a ghetto. It's dangerous. You don't want. There's a different route you want to take. This other route to get there. Interesting, right? This this avoidance was not. We like to think of it as this ancient thing, Uh, but this didn't just happen. We have these whole routes. But here's the thing: not Jesus. Jesus is not like this. Um, Jesus does not wait for people to come to him. Hear me this morning. Jesus does not wait for people to come to him. He goes to them no matter how dangerous, no matter how he may be misunderstood. Jesus always makes his way. And this is actually always the way that it is with God. God is always and forever making the first step towards humanity. We use these ridiculous sayings of, oh, oh, you know, God will meet you halfway. Hallelujah. Pardon me? If you can make it halfway, then God, God was there before you even turned. God is always and forever making the first step toward humanity, which tells me at least two things this morning in our interaction. Number one, it is a fundamental mistake for us to believe that the church exists somehow primarily so that people may find their way to us. We do not exist so people might somehow make their way into this building. We have been called to go and to hit the streets and to search out the other, whoever the other is. But here is the second thing, and I think we misunderstand this a lot. It is not the fact that somehow uh, when we do this, now we're bringing Jesus to them. Jesus was there far before we ever even thought to go. And if you actually look closely at this story, one of the things that you're going to find is all of this happens while the disciples are gone. And the disciples end up coming back and showing up and being like, Jesus, what Like, what are you doing here? Right? And their mouths are dropped to the ground because they, they're shocked at the people that Jesus is interacting with. And a lot of times we think, oh, hallelujah, we are going to go and bring Jesus to the ghetto. We're going to go and bring Jesus to this community. We're going to go and bring Jesus overseas as if somehow Jesus is not there. He always makes the first step, and we follow, and we get once we get over our shock, we can stand there, and our job is simply to testify of the goodness of Jesus, what he's done for us, and what he's done for me, he can do for you too. This, this, this is this is what Jesus did. Uh, here's a second thing to note is, is that Jesus is very respectful for this woman. Uh, Jesus is, is very clear on recognizing the invisible barriers that are, are between them. Uh, when the woman says this to Jesus, this is interesting. She says, John 4:12, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds. What she is saying here is, have you come here to disrespect my culture and my religion and my heritage? And guess what? Jesus does not respond by saying, well, actually, your religion is all mixed up. Does he? And you better get your doctrine straight. He does point out that salvation comes from the Jews, but then he goes on to say, but there's a whole new thing happening. Everybody needs to recognize this at this moment. Uh, he doesn't go and tell her, you're an immoral woman, which, by the way, is something we've wanted to do with her for the past 500 years, but it's not in the text. He does not show up and say, you're, you're an immoral woman, and you better get your life uh, straight. He doesn't try to convince her that his religion is better than her religion, right? Right. Uh, this is not what Jesus does. We do this a lot of times. But if we do read the story of Nicodemus and then read this story, it should fill us with a great dose of humility in our interactions because it's often religious people, religious insiders, who are getting things wrong and are misunderstanding and misrepresenting God. So we should be very cautious and approach our, our conversation with others with humility. And here's the thing. Jesus knew the boundaries, but he did not overcome them by mocking them. And he did not overcome them by exploiting them, but by moving past them with love. This is what Jesus, he comes and he moves past them with love. Uh, there's a story of Henry Nouwen. Uh, Henry Nowen was a really an incredible spiritual writer and intellect. And he mo- he moved to Toronto, actually. To work with people with disabilities, um, Philip Yancey, another author, he he spent some time with him, and and uh, now and ended up going to San Francisco, and this is before the days where we had um, good medication to help with the AIDS virus, when people w- would just suffer terrible deaths deaths from this, and and. Now and went there and he began to interview these people and to minister with these people who were dying of AIDS. And he began to hear stories of addiction and stories of self-harm and stories of promiscuity. And the Holy Spirit did something to him as he began to hear these stories. And he realized these are simply thirsty people. And they've went, they've gone to the wrong places for the water. But their thirst is actually the same as as everybody else. And the Holy Spirit began to do something in him. And he had this prayer that he began to pray, which I think is a prayer that we need to adopt for ourselves. He said, God, help me to see others not as my enemies or as ungodly, but rather as thirsty people. And give me the courage and compassion to offer your living water which alone quenches deep thirst. When Jesus met with the other, the religious other, uh, whatever other you want to put in here, he didn't come and offer moral, cultural, or theological superiority. Even though he is the king of the entire universe, what Jesus offered was water to a thirsty woman. He began by asking her for water, but by the end, he, he, he was offering her hurt water, right? But the water that he was offering was not merely from, from this well that they were at. It was water from heaven that can actually quench the thirst of every one of us today. Now, lest we judge those who are trying to find the water in the wrong way, May I remind us all today that this water would eventually flow from the side of Christ, which was broken open for all of our transgressions. So we are to let people know where to find this water, but never from a place of imagined superiority. Gordon Lathrop once said that I quoted this at the, at the Convergence on Thursday. I love, I, I, and I will quote it again, I'm sure. He said, the authority of the preacher should be seen simply as the awesome authority of one beggar giving other beggars bread in a hungry world. But not just preachers. This is all of us. You have been given the authority of the kingdom of heaven, but your authority is as one beggar giving another beggar water in a world that is thirsty for it. This is the authority that we have in Jesus' name. We are beggars who give other beggars water in a thirsty world. So to minister in the Jesus way, it means that we break down these barriers that divide us from other people. And and this is is what Jesus did with this woman. He began to tear down the walls that divided them because of race and because of religion and because of gender. You know, just yesterday I I saw somebody on, on Facebook, sweet Jesus, help me. That, that begin to say, you know, oh, if Islam is a Christian, if Islam is such a peaceful religion, well, blah, 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 and they're going on. Listen, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if Facebook causes you to sin, shut it off. Facebook is one of the biggest distractions for the people of God right now to get involved in this brutal rhetoric of division. But here's the thing. We are people of the cross. Yeah, that that didn't have too too big of an amen. (laughs) Maybe you know what it means. We are people of the cross. And Paul tells us about the cross and what it accomplishes. Listen to this, Ephesians 2. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting it aside in his flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations. Now listen to this. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making what? Peace. And in one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Is he speaking of Jews and Gentiles? Yes. But he is also speaking of the purposes of God for all of humanity, which is to make one new humanity by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We therefore must not be a people who build walls of separation, but we must, if we are people of the cross, be people who will tear down walls of separation in Jesus' name and in the Jesus way. So Jesus brings dignity to this woman and he empowers this woman. She becomes our first ever evangelist. Now, I love this because most of the time, uh, when somebody comes, like, to Jesus, and we're like, hey, man, we are excited for you to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. If you just go to these 22 classes and learn our 972 points, you're good. Listen, this woman does not quote, like, a creed. Here is her confession of faith. You ready for it? Come and meet the man who told me anyth- everything I ever did. Period. I mean, that, that was her salvation prayer right there. It was none, none of this like, dear Jesus, come into my heart. Was, come and meet the man. He told me everything I ever did. Hallelujah. And, but somehow, by the Spirit of God, she goes out and she becomes our prime example of an evangelist. Which, by the way, our, our first theologian was a woman, Hagar in the Old Testament. Our first evangelist was a woman in the New Testament. And she becomes this. Jesus empowers her. But you know, Jesus did something else too. Nicodemus missed the metaphor, didn't he? He didn't get it. But the Samaritan woman, she got it. And I think the question for us this morning is do we see it? (laughs) Do we see the, the metaphor? Where did Jesus meet this woman? Not a trick question. Where did, where did Jesus meet this woman? At a well. Whose well? Anybody remember? Jacob, yeah. Jacob's well. And here I think we're either going to catch or miss what's going on. When you read through the book of Genesis and even into the book of Exodus, what you will find is all of the great patriarchs of faith met their wives at wells. If you look at Isaac, Isaac was betrothed to Rebekah at a well in Genesis 24. Moses met his wife, and all these stories are very, very similar in language, by the way. Moses met his wife at a well on Exodus chapter 2, and Jacob... Jacob saw Rachel at a distance, and what did he do? He went to the well, and he saw the thing, and he's trying to impress her, and he removes the barrier from the water, and he goes, and he kisses her, and he begins to weep because he looks at her. He says, she is the one. She is the one that I want. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this story is nothing short of a betrothal narrative. Which is why Jesus is asking her about her husbands. Now, we like to read this and say, oh, this woman, she was an immoral woman. She liked to run from man to man to man. No. In this time period, and ours for some people, women were treated as property which could be used and then discarded at will. Like you could read laws about people being able to divorce their wives over burnt toast. And so what was happening is that this woman, she was used and then discarded, used and discarded, used and discarded, used and discarded. discarded, discarded. And then Jesus shows up like Jacob, and he removes the barrier to the water for her, and he says, I choose you. But it gets better. Theologian Chris Green, he talks about like, he said, Jesus, like Jacob, encounters this woman as his bride-to-be, but unlike Rachel, do you remember this story? Unlike Rachel, who was a beauty, this woman is conventionally undesirable. She is more like Rachel's sister, Leah. She is a Samaritan. She has had five husbands. Do you remember the story? Jacob thinks he's marrying the one sister, and he ends up marrying the other sister, which is, probably tells us something about alcohol. But he, he marries the wrong woman. And if, as you read through Genesis, it's painful. They refer to her as weak eyes. In other words, like not good looking. And, and she's always trying to impress him. Like maybe if I could just have another baby. Now he's going to love me. Now he's going to love me. But he always says, no, no, no. You know, I have no use. I have no use for you. Rachel's the one that I want. Even I know I married you. but Jesus is like the new Jacob, except... He does not show up and just try to find the Rachel. He actually goes to the discarded people in our society, Leahs like you and I, and he goes to the Leahs, which everybody else is overlooking. He says, I choose you. I want to be betrothed to you. So Jesus was figuratively betrothed to this woman. Now, I guess we should ask, what betrothal? This is not a word we use a lot, is it? Uh, betrothal is not marriage, but it leads to it. Uh, betrothal was a covenant that was made between a man and a woman. And it was like an engagement, but it was stronger than an engagement. And what would happen was, when there was a betrothal, uh, there would be a celebration. And then the man would go away. And what he would do is prepare a place. He would prepare a home so that when the day of the wedding feast came... They would be together, and a place would be prepared, and he would take his bride back to live in the home that he had prepared. John uses betrothal language throughout John. Listen to this, John 14, 3. Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, this is betrothal language right here, I will come back at the wedding feast and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Here is the thing. We are living in the betrothal period. The church is called the bride of Christ. And we are living in, in this betrothal period. Jesus has called a bride, a bunch of Leah's like you and I. And he has gone to prepare a place for us. And he promises that at someday he will come back and he will take us to the place at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He will take us to the place where he has prepared for us. In the meantime, we have this word that we say, Maranatha. And what it means is, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because we look around us in the world, and we see all the brokenness in the world. And we see how things have gone wrong. And we say, Jesus, come back. Make it right. Make it right. Come quickly. Because he promises when he will come, he will make all things right. But in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, there's actually a double meaning used for this word, come. On the one hand, we see all of creation calling out, come, come, Jesus, please, come. We're waiting for you. We're waiting. You're going to make it right. Come, Maranatha, come quickly. But on the other hand, there is a call that is going out across all of the earth. Revelation twenty-two seventeen 17 says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let those who hear say, come. And let those who are thirsty, come. And let all who wish take the free gift of the water of life. The spirit and the bride, in other words, the people of God uniting their voices with the spirit of God and going out to the highways and the byways, bringing not judgment and division and condemnation, but bringing living water which is free to all. So, holy beggars who have found the living water which is flowing inside of you, coming from the side of Christ, go with joy to a world thirsty for living water Lift your voice with the Spirit of God and say, Come, because there is enough water for all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to us today. For more information about who we are, head over to myjourney.church or look for us on your favorite social media outlet.